This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH, from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Developmental dysplasia of the hip is a disorder of abnormal development resulting in dysplasia, subluxation, and possible dislocation of the hip secondary to capsular laxity and mechanical instability. Diagnosis can be confirmed with ultrasonography in the first four months and then with radiographs after the femoral head ossification occurs at approximately four to six months. Treatment varies from pavlic bracing to surgical reduction and osteotomies depending on the age of the patient, underlying etiology, and the severity of dysplasia. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, this is the most common orthopedic disorder in newborns. Dysplasia is seen in 1 in 100 patients, and dislocation is seen in 1 in 1,000 patients. As far as the demographics, DDH is more common in females in a 6 to 1 ratio. It's also more commonly seen in Native Americans and Laplanders, and this may be due to cultural traditions such as swaddling with the hips together in extension. Keep in mind that this condition is rarely seen in African Americans. As far as the location, DDH is most commonly seen in the left hip in 60% of cases. This is due to the most common intrauterine position being left occiput anterior, where the left hip is adducted against the mother's lumbosacral spine. DDH can be bilateral in 20% of cases. Risk factors for DDH include the firstborn child due to the unstretched uterus and tight abdominal structures compressing the uterus, female gender due to the increased ligamentous laxity that transiently exists as a result of circulating maternal hormones and the estrogens produced by the fetal uterus. Breach is another risk factor and this is more commonly seen in female children, firstborn children, and pregnancies complicated by oligohydramnios. Keep in mind that there's a higher risk of DDH with frank slash single breech position compared to a footling breech position. Other risk factors include family history, oligohydramnios, macrosomia, limited hip abduction, talopes equinovarus or clubfoot, and swaddling. Moving on to etiology, DDH encompasses a spectrum of disease that includes dysplasia, subluxation, dislocation, teratologic hip, as well as late or adolescent dysplasia. Dysplasia of the hip refers to a shallow or underdeveloped acetabulum. Subluxation refers to displacement of the joint with some contact remaining between the articular surfaces. Dislocation refers to complete displacement of the joint with no contact between the original articular surfaces. A teratologic hip refers to a hip that's dislocated in utero and irreducible on neonatal exam. These patients present with a pseudoacetabulum, and this condition is associated with neuromuscular conditions and genetic disorders. It's commonly seen with arthrogryposis, myelomeningocele, Larsen syndrome, and Ehlers-Danlos. Late or adolescent dysplasia refers to a mechanically stable and reduced but dysplastic hip. With respect to the pathophysiology of developmental dysplasia of the hip, as far as the etiology, initial instability is thought to be caused by maternal and fetal laxity, genetic laxity, and intrauterine and postnatal malpositioning. Initial instability leads to dysplasia and typically the deficiency is an anterior or anterolateral acetabulum. However, in spastic cerebral palsy, acetabular deficiency is posterosuperior. Remember that dysplasia leads to subluxation and gradual dislocation. Repetitive subluxation of the femoral head leads to the formation of a ridge of thickened articular cartilage, 
called the limbus. Chronic dislocation leads to development of secondary barriers to reduction, specifically the pulvinar thickens, ligamentum teres thickens and elongates, the transverse acetabular ligament hypertrophies, and the hip capsule as well as the iliopsoas form an hourglass configuration. Some anatomic changes to be aware of include an increased femoral antiversion, flattening of the femoral head, increased acetabular antiversion, increased obliquity and decreased concavity of the acetabular roof, and thickening of the medial acetabular wall. As far as associated conditions, DDH can be associated with packaging deformities, which include congenital muscular torticollis in 20% of patients, metatarsus adductus in 10% of patients, and congenital knee dislocation. DDH may also be associated with conditions characterized by increased amounts of type 3 collagen. As far as the classification of DDH, it can be classified as a spectrum of disease involvement in phases, that is subluxable, dislocatable, and dislocated. In the subluxable type, Barlow is suggestive. In the dislocatable type, the Barlow is positive. And in the dislocated type, Ortolani is positive early when reducible, and Ortolani is negative late when irreducible. As far as the presentation of DDH with respect to the physical exam in patients less than three months old, the mainstay of physical diagnosis is palpable hip subluxation slash dislocation on exam. So the main exam maneuvers to know is the Barlow, Ortolani, and Galeazzi or Alice. The Barlow test is when you dislocate a dislocatable hip by adduction and depression of the flexed femur. You may notice what's known as a click of exit. Ortolani reduces a dislocated hip by elevation and abduction of the flexed femur, and you may notice what's known as a click of entry. A Galeazzi or Alice test is when there's apparent limb length discrepancy due to a unilateral dislocated hip with the hip flex at 90 degrees and the feet on the table. The femur appears to be shortened on the dislocated side. Keep in mind that hip clicks are nonspecific findings, and Barlow and Arlani exams are rarely positive after three months of age because of soft tissue contractures that form around the hip. As far as the physical exam in patients greater than three months to a year, you may notice limitations in hip abduction. This is the most sensitive test once contractures have begun to occur, and this occurs as laxity resolves and stiffness begins to occur, and keep in mind that this is decreased symmetrically in bilateral dislocations. On physical exam in patients greater than three months to a year old, leg length discrepancy predominates. The Klissig test is used to detect bilateral dislocations, and this is when there's a line from the long finger placed over the greater trochanter and the index finger over the ASIS should point to the umbilicus. If the hip is dislocated, the line will point halfway between the umbilicus and the pubis. Physical exam for a patient greater than one year, that is in a walking child, will reveal pelvic obliquity, lumbar lordosis in response to hip contractures resulting from bilateral dislocations in a child of walking age, Trendelenburg gait results from abductor insufficiency, and you may see that these patients are toe walking in an attempt to compensate for the relative shortening of the affected side. As far as imaging, radiographs become the primary imaging modality at four to six months after the femoral head begins to ossify. Plain films are indicated after a positive physical exam, as well as in patients with a leg length discrepancy. Recommended views include an AP of the pelvis. Some measurements to be aware of in the setting of a hip dislocation include Helgenreiner's line, Perkins line, and Shenton's line. Helgenreiner's line is a horizontal line through the right and left triradiate cartilage. Femoral head ossification should be inferior to this line. 
Perkins' line is a line perpendicular to Helgenreiner's line through a point at the lateral margin of the acetabulum. Femoral head ossification should be medial to this line. Shenton's line is an arc along the inferior border of the femoral neck and the superior margin of the obturator foramen. The arc line should be continuous. Keep in mind that delayed ossification of the femoral head is seen in cases of dislocation. The acetabular teardrop is not typically present prior to hip reduction for chronic dislocations since birth. Development of the teardrop after reduction is thought to be a good prognostic sign for hip function. Measurements in the setting of hip dysplasia include the acetabular index and the center edge angle of Weiberg. The acetabular index is the angle formed by Hilgenreiner's line and a line from a point on the lateral triradiate cartilage to a point on the lateral margin of the acetabulum. The acetabular index should be less than 25 degrees in patients older than 6 months. The center edge angle of Weiberg is an angle formed by Perkins' line and a line from the center of the femoral head to the lateral edge of the acetabulum. Less than 20 degrees is considered abnormal. And keep in mind that the center edge angle of Weiberg is only reliable in patients greater than 5 years old. Ultrasound is indicated as the primary imaging modality from birth to 4 months. Keep in mind, however, that ultrasound may produce spurious results if performed before 4 to 6 weeks of age. Ultrasound is indicated for a positive physical exam and for patients with risk factors such as family history or breech position. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends an ultrasound study at 6 weeks in patients who are considered high risk, that is family history or breech presentation, despite a normal exam. Other indications for ultrasound include monitoring of reduction during pavlic harness treatment. However, keep in mind that most studies show that it is not cost-effective for routine screening. As far as findings on ultrasound, this study evaluates for acetabular dysplasia and or the presence of a hip dislocation. It allows for a view of the bony acetabular anatomy, femoral head, labrum, ligamentum teres, and the hip capsule. A normal ultrasound in patients with soft tissue clicks will have normal acetabular development. Some measurements to be aware of on a hip ultrasound include the alpha angle and the beta angle. The alpha angle is the angle created by lines along the bony acetabulum and the ilium. Normal is greater than 60 degrees. The beta angle is the angle created by lines along the labrum and the ilium. Normal is less than 55 degrees. Keep in mind that the femoral head is normally bisected by a line drawn down from the ilium. As far as staging using ultrasound, the graph classification is the one to know and is divided into four classes. Class 1 is defined by an alpha angle of greater than 60 degrees and a beta angle of less than 55 degrees. Class 1 is considered normal and no treatment is required. Class 2 has an alpha angle of between 43 to 60 degrees and a beta angle of between 55 to 77 degrees. This class is characterized by delayed ossification and treatment is variable. Class 3 corresponds to an alpha angle of less than 43 degrees and a beta angle of greater than 77 degrees. This class is characterized by a subluxated hip and the treatment is a pavlic harness. Class 4 has an unmeasurable alpha angle and a beta angle as the hip is dislocated in this class. The treatment is a pavlic harness slash closed versus open reduction. An arthrogram is indicated to confirm reduction after closed reduction under anesthesia. It can be helpful to identify possible blocks to reduction, such as an inverted labrum, an inverted limbus, the transverse acetabular ligament, the hip capsule can be constricted by the iliopsoas tendon, causing an hourglass deformity of the capsule, the pulvinar can be a block to reduction, as well as the ligamentum teres. 
with respect to an inverted labrum, remember that the labrum enhances the depth of the acetabulum by 20% to 50% and contributes to the growth of the acetabular rim. In the older infant with DDH, the labrum may be inverted and may mechanically block the concentric reduction of the hip. As far as an inverted limbus, this represents a pathologic response of the acetabulum to abnormal pressures caused by superior migration of the femoral head, and this consists of fibrous tissue. The transverse acetabular ligament is located at the caudal perimeter of the acetabulum, and in persistent hip dislocation becomes contracted and can act as a block to reduction. The pulvinar is fibrofatty tissue within the acetabulum that can act as a block to reduction and the pulvinar spontaneously regresses after the hip is reduced. The ligamentum teres acts as a minor source of blood supply to the femoral head, and in persistent hip dislocation, it lengthens and hypertrophies and can act as a block to reduction. Moving on to a CT scan, this has historically been the study of choice to evaluate reduction of the hip after close reduction and spica casting. An MRI is increasingly used to evaluate the reduction of the hip after close reduction and spica casting in order to minimize radiation compared to CT scan. As far as screening for DDH, all infants require screening. As far as physical exam, successful screening requires repetitive screening until walking age. As far as ultrasound, ultrasound screening of all infants occurs in many countries. However, it has not been proven to be cost effective. The USA recommendation is to perform an ultrasound at four to six weeks in patients with risk factors, as well as positive physical findings. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends an ultrasound study at six weeks in patients who are considered high risk, that is patients that have a family history or breach presentation despite a normal exam. An ultrasound can also be utilized to follow Pavlik treatment or for equivocal exams. As far as treatment for DDH in children, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can involve abduction splinting slash bracing, otherwise known as a pavlic harness, or close reduction and spica casting. Abduction splinting slash bracing or a pavlic harness is indicated for patients less than six months old who have a reducible hip. Keep in mind, however, that this treatment is contraindicated in teratologic hip dislocations and patients with spina bifida or spasticity, as a pavlic harness requires normal muscle function for successful outcomes. Close reduction and spica casting is indicated for patients 6 to 18 months old, as well as in patients that have a failure of Pavlik treatment. Operative options include open reduction and spica casting, open reduction and femoral osteotomy, as well as open reduction and pelvic osteotomy. Open reduction and spica casting is indicated for patients greater than 18 months old, as well as those patients that have a failure of close reduction. Open reduction and femoral osteotomy is indicated for patients greater than two years old with residual hip dysplasia. It's also indicated for anatomic changes on the femoral side, for example, femoral antiversion or coxivalga. And keep in mind that an open reduction and femoral osteotomy is best in younger children that is defined as less than four years old. And after four years old, pelvic osteotomies are utilized. So the indications for open reduction and pelvic osteotomy is a patient greater than two years old with residual hip dysplasia, severe dysplasia accompanied by significant radiographic changes on the acetabular side, that is with an increased acetabular index, and it's used more commonly in older children, as we just mentioned, defined as greater than four years old, as there is a decreased potential for acetabular remodeling as the child ages. Now let's go over some of these techniques in a bit more detail specifically abduction splinting slash bracing, or the use of a pavlic harness, close reduction and spica casting, open reduction, femoral varus derotation osteotomy, or a VDRO, 
and pelvic osteotomies. As far as the goals of abduction splinting slash bracing or a pavlic harness, treatment is based on early concentric reduction in order to prevent future degeneration of the hip. Risk, complexity, and complications are increased with delays in diagnosis. As far as the technique, positioning of the pavlic harness is as follows. The anterior straps flex the hips to 90 to 100 degrees of flexion and prevent extension. The posterior straps prevent adduction of the hips. Make sure to confirm the position with ultrasound or radiography and monitor every four to six weeks. The pavlic harness must be worn 23 hours per day for at least six weeks or until the hip is stable. You can wean out of the harness over six to eight weeks after the hip has stabilized until normal anatomy develops. Discontinue if the hip is not reduced by three to four weeks to prevent pavlic disease. Complications specific to this treatment include avascular necrosis, transient femoral nerve palsy, and pavlic disease. Avascular necrosis is due to impingement of the posterosuperior retinacular branch of the medial femoral circumflex artery. This is seen with extreme abduction that is greater than 60 degrees. You can prevent this via placement of abduction within the safe zone, which is the zone located between the angle of maximal passive hip abduction and the angle of hip adduction at which the femoral head displaces from the acetabulum when the hips are in 90 degrees of flexion. Transient femoral nerve palsy is another complication specific to pavlic harnesses, and this is seen with hyperflexion. Finally, pavlic disease is erosion of the pelvis superior to the acetabulum and prevention of the development of the posterior wall of the acetabulum due to prolonged positioning of a dislocated hip in flexion and abduction. It's important to discontinue the harness if the hip is not reduced by three to four weeks in order to prevent pavlic disease. As far as outcomes of pavlic harnesses, there's an overall success rate of 90%, and this is dependent upon the age at initiation of the treatment and time spent in the harness. Make sure to abandon the pavlic harness treatment if not successful after three to four weeks. If the pavlic harness fails, consider converting to a semi-rigid abduction brace with weekly ultrasounds for an addition of three to four weeks before considering further intervention. Moving on to close reduction and spica casting, this should be performed under general anesthesia, and keep in mind that excessive force can result in avascular necrosis. As far as the technique, you can close reduce using the Ortolani maneuver, which is hip flexion and abduction while elevating the greater trochanter. An orthogram can be used to confirm the reduction. You must obtain concentric reduction with less than 5 millimeters of pooling, medial to the femoral head, and no interposition of the limbus. A medial dipole of greater than 7 millimeters is associated with poor outcomes and avascular necrosis. Again, a medial dipole of greater than 7 millimeters is associated with poor outcomes and avascular necrosis. Keep in mind that an orthogram also helps identify anatomic blocks to reduction. An adductor tenotomy should be performed if the patient has an unstable safe zone. For example, if excessive abduction is required to maintain the reduction. Spica casting can be done to immobilize in 100 degrees of hip flexion and 45 degrees of abduction with neutral rotation for three months. This is what's known as the, quote, human position. Keep in mind that wide abduction is associated with avascular necrosis, so aim for less than 55 degrees of abduction. Again, wide abduction is associated with avascular necrosis, so aim for less than 55 degrees of abduction. Remember that you can confirm reduction with a CT scan in a spica cast with selective cuts to minimize radiation to the child. If you're going to use a spica cast, you should change the cast at six weeks. Complications specific to this treatment include avascular necrosis, 
Risk factors, again, include extreme abduction greater than 60 degrees and a medial dipole of greater than 7 millimeters. In the setting of extreme abduction greater than 60 degrees, avascular necrosis can occur due to impingement of the posterior superior retinacular branch of the medial femoral circumflex artery. You can prevent this via placement of abduction within the safe zone. This is the zone located between the angle of maximal passive hip abduction and the angle of hip adduction at which the femoral head displaces from the acetabulum when the hips are in 90 degrees of flexion. A medial dipole of greater than 7 millimeters indicates an unstable reduction. Moving on to an open reduction, the approach can be done through an anterior approach, otherwise known as a Smith-Peterson approach, or a medial approach. The anterior approach, or Smith-Peterson approach, is most commonly used due to the decreased risk of injury to the medial femoral circumflex artery. Capsulography can be performed after reduction, and this approach is typically used if the patient is greater than 12 months old. As far as a medial approach, the pros are that you can directly address blocks to reduction and can be used in patients less than 12 months old, and there's decreased blood loss. However, the cons are that you are unable to perform a capsulography, and there's a higher risk of avascular necrosis. As far as types of medial approach, there's the Ludloff approach, the Weinstein approach, and the Ferguson approach. The Ludloff approach is a true medial approach which is performed between the pectineus and the adductor longus and brevis. The Weinstein approach is an anteromedial approach and is performed between the neurovascular bundle and the pectineus. A Ferguson is a posteromedial approach which is performed superficially between the adductor longus and gracilis and deep between the adductor brevis and adductor magnus. With respect to soft tissues, make sure to remove possible anatomic blocks to reduction. These include iliopsoas contracture, capsular constriction, inverted labrum, pulvinar, or a hypertrophied ligamentum teres. You can perform an adductor tenotomy if the patient has an unstable safe zone, as we previously mentioned, for example, if excessive abduction is required to maintain the reduction. Postoperatively, you can immobilize in the functional position of 30 degrees of flexion, 30 degrees of abduction, and 30 degrees of internal rotation. A femoral varus derotational osteotomy, or a VDRO, is indicated for femoral shortening which facilitates reduction and decreases the risk of avascular necrosis by relieving the tension produced by the reduction of a previously dislocated hip. A VDRO is also indicated to correct excessive femoral antiversion and or valgus. Keep in mind that a femoral varus derotational osteotomy is used after the femoral head is congruently reduced with satisfactory range of motion and reasonable femoral sphericity. Moving on to pelvic osteotomies, the indications are to increase anterior or anterolateral coverage, as well as in the setting of an increased acetabular index consistent with acetabular dysplasia. Pelvic osteotomies are used after reduction is confirmed on abduction internal rotation views and satisfactory range of motion has been obtained. There are several reconstructive pelvic osteotomies as well as salvage pelvic osteotomies that we'll go over now. The Salter osteotomy is indicated in younger patients typically with open triradiate cartilage. The technique involves a single transverse cut above the acetabulum through the ilium to the sciatic notch. The acetabulum hinges through the pubic symphysis. This technique improves anterolateral coverage and you can provide 20 to 25 degrees lateral and 10 to 15 degrees anterior coverage. And keep in mind that with the Salter osteotomy, you may lengthen the leg up to one centimeter. A triple or steel osteotomy is favored in older children because their symphysis pubis does not rotate well. Keep in mind that a triple or steel osteotomy is performed when open triradiate cartilages are present. 
The technique involves a psalter osteotomy plus additional cuts through the superior and inferior pubic rami. This is basically an acetabular reorientation procedure, and this improves anterolateral coverage. For a periacetabular osteotomy or a Gans osteotomy, the triradiate cartilage must be closed in order to perform this. The technique involves multiple osteotomies in the pubis, ilium, and ischium near the acetabulum. This allows for improved 3D correction of the acetabulum configuration. The Gans osteotomy is technically the most challenging. In this technique, the posterior column and the pelvic ring remain intact, and patients are allowed to weight bear early. Moving on to the Pemberton osteotomy, this is indicated for moderate to severe DDH. It's the most versatile pelvic osteotomy, and again, the triradiate cartilage must be open in order to perform this osteotomy. As far as the technique, the osteotomy starts approximately 10 to 15 millimeters above the AIIS and proceeds posteriorly to end at the level of the ilioischial limb of the triradiate cartilage that is halfway between the sciatic notch and the posterior acetabular rim. The acetabulum hinges at the triradiate cartilage posteriorly and the symphysis pubis anteriorly. This technique does not enter the sciatic notch and is therefore stable and does not need internal fixation. The Pemberton pelvic osteotomy improves anterolateral coverage and reduces acetabular volume. Again, the Pemberton pelvic osteotomy improves anterolateral coverage and reduces acetabular volume. The Degas osteotomy is favored in neuromuscular dislocations like cerebral palsy and patients with posterior acetabular deficiency. This may also be used for severe DDH cases. As far as the technique for the Degas, an osteotomy is done from the acetabular roof to the triradiate cartilage and specifically incomplete cuts through the pericapsular portion of the innominate bone. The acetabulum hinges through the triradiate cartilage, and this technique does not enter the sciatic notch and is therefore stable and does not need internal fixation. The Degas pelvic osteotomy improves anterior, central, or posterior coverage and also reduces the acetabular volume. Again, the Degas pelvic osteotomy improves anterior, central, or posterior coverage and reduces the acetabular volume. Finally, the dial reconstructive pelvic osteotomy is technically difficult and rarely used. However, the technique involves leaving the medial wall or the teardrop in its original position and is therefore intraarticular. The technique for the dial osteotomy is a spherical osteotomy. Again, the dial osteotomy leaves the medial wall or teardrop in its original position and is therefore intraarticular and is considered a spherical osteotomy. Moving on to the salvage pelvic osteotomies, the ones to know are the shelf osteotomy and the Chiari osteotomy. The shelf is a salvage procedure performed in patients greater than 8 years old. The technique involves adding bone to the lateral weight-bearing aspect of the acetabulum by placing an extra-articular buttress of bone over the subluxated femoral head. This technique depends on fibrocartilage metaplasia for successful results. Again, the shelf is a salvage pelvic osteotomy that depends on the fibrocartilage metaplasia for successful results. The Chiari is a salvage procedure for patients with inadequate femoral head coverage and when a concentric reduction cannot be obtained. This osteotomy starts above the acetabulum to the sciatic notch and the ilium is shifted lateral beyond the edge of the acetabulum. This option also depends on fibrocartilage metaplasia for successful results and keep in mind that the Chiari salvage pelvic osteotomy medializes the acetabulum via an iliac osteotomy. Finally, let's end this review session discussing a few complications from DDH, which include avascular necrosis, delayed diagnosis, recurrence, and transient femoral nerve palsy. Avascular necrosis can be seen with all forms of treatment. 
However, there are increased rates associated with excessive or forceful abduction, previous failed closed treatment, and repeat surgery. The diagnosis is based on radiographic findings that include failure of appearance of growth of the ascific nucleus one year after the reduction, broadening of the femoral neck, increased density and fragmentation of the ossified femoral head, and residual deformity of the proximal femur after ossification. As far as delayed diagnosis, let's talk about bilateral dislocations and unilateral dislocations. In bilateral dislocations, patients typically function better if the hips are not reduced if the patient is 6 years of age or older. In unilateral dislocations, there are better outcomes without surgical treatment if the patient is greater than 8 years old. An epiphysiodesis can be performed for treatment of limb length discrepancy. As far as recurrence, approximately 10% of patients with DDH have recurrence with appropriate treatment, and this requires radiographic follow-up until skeletal maturity. Finally, transient femoral nerve palsy can be seen with excessive flexion during pavlic bracing. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A four-month-old boy is brought to clinic by his parents for routine evaluation. On physical examination, there is evidence of hip clicking, but negative Barlow and Ordlani testing. Radiographs are obtained and reveal a left and right hip acetabular index of 35 degrees and 40 degrees, respectively. Both hips are well located, but there is evidence of hip dysplasia. What is the most appropriate next step in treatment? And the choices are 1. Observation 2. Pavlik harness 3. Triple diaper regimen 4. Open reduction of the left hip and 5. Close reduction of right and left hips. The correct answer to this question is 2. Pavlik harness. So this 4-month-old is presenting with bilateral developmental dysplasia of the hip, or DDH, and should be treated with pavlik harness. DDH refers to the full spectrum of abnormalities involving the pediatric hip, with varied expression from dysplasia to subluxation to dislocation of the hip joint. Several reference lines and angles are helpful in the evaluation of the AP radiograph of the pediatric pelvis. The acetabular index, or AI, is calculated by drawing an oblique line through the outer edge of the acetabulum tangential to Hilgenreiner's line. The normal value for AI averages 27.5 degrees, and an index greater than 35 degrees suggests acetabular dysplasia. In patients under 6 months old with no hip dislocation, the pavlik harness is the first line of treatment. Guile et al. published a review article on DDH from birth to 6 months. They reported that the pavlik harness is the primary initial treatment for the patient who has not yet begun to stand. They also state that if a stable reduction of a dislocated hip cannot be achieved after 2 weeks in a pavlik, a closed reduction under anesthesia may be indicated. They cited a success rate of over 90% with few complications and concluded that early diagnosis is of paramount importance to favorably alter the natural history of DDH. Walton et al. published on the success of management with the pavlik harness for DDH using a United Kingdom screening program and ultrasound-guided supervision. They reported that 100% of hips diagnosed with dysplasia or subluxation but not dislocation were managed successfully in the pavlik harness. They recommended treatment with the pavlik harness for infants with DDH without dislocation in conjunction with an early screening program. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, observation is incorrect, as this patient has bilateral DDH and should be treated early to prevent progression. Observation would not be appropriate. Answer 3, triple diaper regimen is incorrect, as this is not an appropriate treatment option for DDH. 
Answer four, open reduction of the left hip is also incorrect as this is not an appropriate treatment in this patient. And finally, answer five, closed reduction of the right and left hips is incorrect as closed reduction is not indicated as both hips are located. Moving on to the next question. An 18-month-old boy presents to clinic for evaluation. He had a positive Ortolani test on both hips at birth and was treated with a pavlic harness. He had poor compliance and was lost to follow-up. He is now found to have a right hip dislocation on ultrasound that is unable to be reduced in the office. What is the recommended treatment? And the choices are 1. Reapplication of the pavlic harness in the office. 2. Application of hip abduction brace in the office. 3. Closed reduction in the operating room with hip abduction brace application. 4. Closed reduction in the operating room with a spica cast application. And 5. Open reduction and spica cast application. The correct answer to this question is 5. Open reduction and spica cast application. So children greater than 12 months old with developmental dysplasia of the hip or DDH and hip dislocations most often require open rather than closed reduction for treatment. Those older than 18 months of age may also require an osteotomy. The goal of treatment in DDH is to produce a stable, concentric, and reduced hip as the child develops. As a child ages, reduction of a dislocated hip becomes more difficult due to soft tissue contractures and the development of structures that block reduction, such as the ligamentum teres, pulvinar, labrum, transverse acetabular ligament, capsule, and adductor slash psoas tendon. In a child with DDH that is older than 18 to 24 months of age, significant bony deformity may exist and require treatment with a femoral shortening and or pelvic osteotomy. Murphy et al. reviewed the surgical management of DDH. In general, children younger than 6 months of age may initially undergo a trial of non-operative management with the pavlic harness if the hip is able to be reduced in clinic. For children 6 to 12 months of age, hip dislocations can usually be treated with closed reduction and spica casting. At age 12 to 18 months, open reduction is usually required, and at ages greater than 18 months, a patient may require femoral osteotomy for reduction and correction of the deformity. Kotlarski et al. reviewed the evolution of DDH management. They reported that the Barlow and Ortolani maneuvers and the Galeazzi sign are the most useful exam findings initially. However, for children older than 3 months of age, the presence of asymmetric hip abduction can be more reliable. They recommend that ultrasound should be performed for patients with any concern on physical examination. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, reapplication of a pavlic harness in the office is incorrect as a pavlic harness would not be appropriate for this patient given that he is older than 6 to 12 months of age, has failed prior non-operative treatment using the harness, and is unable to be reduced in clinic. Answer 2, application of a hip abduction brace in the office is also incorrect. Keep in mind that an older method that is still advocated in some international centers is to apply skin traction prior to attempting reduction in order to stretch the soft tissue structures around the hip. However, this is not the current standard of care in most centers. Answer 3, closed reduction in the operating room with a hip abduction brace application, and answer 4, closed reduction in the operating room with a spica cast application are both incorrect, as closed reduction is unlikely to be successful in a patient older than 12 months of age. And moving on to the final question, the pavlic harness has been integral in the treatment of developmental dysplasia of the hip or DDH. If the practitioner is not mindful of hip positioning, complications may occur. Which of the following correctly pairs hip positioning with its associated complication? And the choices are 1. Excessive flexion will lead to osteonecrosis, and excessive abduction will lead to femoral nerve palsy. 
2. Excessive extension will lead to osteonecrosis, and excessive abduction will lead to obturator nerve palsy. Answer 3. Excessive adduction will lead to osteonecrosis, and excessive extension will lead to sciatic nerve palsy. 4. Excessive flexion will lead to compartment syndrome, and excessive extension will lead to loss of pulses. And 5. Excessive flexion will lead to femoral nerve palsy, and excessive abduction will lead to osteonecrosis. The correct answer to this question is 5. Excessive flexion will lead to femoral nerve palsy, and excessive abduction will lead to osteonecrosis. So excessive hip flexion is associated with femoral nerve palsy, while excessive hip abduction is associated with osteonecrosis of the femoral head. The pavlik harness is a dynamic positioning device that allows the child to move freely within the confines of its restraints. It is composed of a circumferential chest strap with shoulder straps that allow sites of attachment for lower extremity straps. The anterior lower extremity straps flex the hips, while the posterior lower extremity straps prevent adduction to the hips. Hip flexion should not exceed 90 degrees due to the risk of developing a femoral nerve palsy. Abduction of the hips should not exceed 70 degrees, which is associated with avascular necrosis due to impingement of the posterior superior retinacular branch of the medial femoral circumflex artery. Mernigan et al. performed a retrospective review of all patients who underwent pavlik harness treatment for DDH within a 17-year period. They identified 30 infants with femoral nerve palsy, an incidence of 2.5%. 87% of palsies presented within a week of harness application. It was also more likely in older, larger patients in whom dysplasia was of higher severity. They found that patients whose palsy resolved within three days had a 70% chance of treatment success, and those who had not recovered by 10 days had a 70% chance of treatment failure. Guile et al. reviewed DDH, and they report that indications for the use of harness include the presence of a reducible hip in an infant who has not made attempts to stand. The child's family must be able to follow instructions on its use. When radiographs of the hips and pelvis inflection and abduction indicate the femoral neck axis and head are directed towards the triradiate cartilage but the hip is not fully reduced, the pavlik harness may be used. They conclude that if the hips are not reduced within two to three weeks, other methods of treatment must be employed. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, know that treatment of DDH with a pavlik harness may incur risks of femoral nerve palsy with excessive flexion and osteonecrosis with excessive abduction. The other listed complications are not known to pavlik harness treatment. That's all for this review about developmental dysplasia of the hip or DDH. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.